the Askell Leadership Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Trust Askell Leadership Podcast. It's fair to say we've had a little bit of a break, but we're back. And in the next few weeks, we'll be introducing a number of leaders who, as in the first series of the podcast, will be talking about their leadership, the work they're doing, and they will give some personal insights into what happens in the mind of an executive leader. We decided to take a break because of the COVID pandemic, and quite understandably, leaders wanted to concentrate on their work and day-to-day operations, but we thought that now might be the right time to come back. We haven't asked for reflections on COVID specifically, but during the series, it may happen that some leaders want to talk about changes that the pandemic has brought about. For this episode of the podcast, it is my pleasure to introduce Mark Woods. Mark is the CEO of Cambridge Meridian Academies Trust, or CMAT, as it's more commonly known. I've known Mark for a little while, and I've admired his work and that of his leaders in the trust. This podcast is fascinating, as Mark certainly ranges in many different directions. Sometimes he directly answers the question, but more often we get into some very interesting territories. Various thoughts meet many different forks in the road, but the end result is fascinating. As usual, I start the podcast by asking Mark to describe his personal journey to leadership. I start as an English teacher heading back into Peterborough, which is where I went to school. My father uh, was a deputy head and then head teacher of a primary school. My mum was an office manager in a primary school. At one point, they were working in the same school together, which was a fascinating period. Uh, The only thing I ever promised my dad I'd never become was a teacher. I once got offered, when I hadn't done very well in my A-levels, Goldsmiths phoned up and said, would you like to do English and teaching? And I laughed and put the phone down and said to my dad, the one thing I'm never going to be is like you, which he still finds hugely amusing to this day. Then become an English teacher in Peterborough, then move on to being second in English, head of English, was singularly unsuccessful in ever becoming an assistant principal, then became a vice principal in one go, which was fascinating. And then went on when our trust grew, I was the first person to go and be head teacher in the first sponsored school. And then uh, unfortunately, when dear colleague Martin fell ill, when he passed away, I then became leader of the trust. And that was about, uh, well, eight years ago, he passed away nine years when we realised how poorly he was. What's your incentive in becoming a CEO? In becoming the CEO was um, conversations with Martin about how far we'd got with a vision that we'd established five, six years before that was a little bit different at the time for most schools because it was all about, uh, you'll know the mantra from the SSAT, buy schools for schools. We believed that it was sensible that schools should be working together. Martin was really clear when he was ill, we haven't finished yet. And we had this vision of all through, all inclusive education and that it was my job to make sure that we went on and delivered it. It was a job I was quite happy to do, but wish I'd have still had my partner working alongside. And in terms of CMAT as an organisation, what makes CMAT different to other multi-academy trusts, do you think? That presumes I know an awful lot more than I do about other multi-academy trusts. So I've always thought you, you talk about what you do and you talk about what you do well. 
I'm quite happy to do that. How we're different than anyone else, I don't know, because if you read most of the visions and the values that people say, I haven't yet met a school that said they're frankly not interested in the arts and sport, for example, and yet occasionally I've been in schools where I actually think that's what I'm really watching, although it's still the statement is there. So in terms of how we organise and how we've always thought about it, it goes back to our values and the first one is always the pursuit of excellence doesn't presume that you're ever going to get there it's an ongoing state of trying to achieve something recognizes the evolution of the world that's going on around us and equally i can learn an awful lot from you and i'll copy things from you and then i might make them slightly better and then i should be entirely beholden to be explaining what i've just done with your ideas and we should continually build on what each other do i think we've got a very open approach as a trust to working with others i think we're always quite happy to challenge and argue. I said to our um, executive leadership team the other day that I'd found the eight most argumentative people I could possibly find and put them in a room because that's the only way that we're going to get things better. And as long as you're coming from the best place, then that's fine. I think it's really important around where we are with our geography. So we do know and we quite regularly serve members of our own community I think we've got a real key sense of how important education is and a belief in the power of it. Sometimes that's about providing wider opportunities that children's parents can't possibly provide them. Sometimes it's challenging them with having more empathy. I certainly think back to I went through a comprehensive school and I was never outside set one. I think there are whole parts of that secondary school I knew nothing about. I think it's always been fascinating as you start to walk in others, if you can teach people about empathy and you can encourage young people to learn lessons when they're in school because that's where we send them. You know, to some extent, a school is a safe place to go and make the mistakes you make when you're growing up. And that should mean that it's a supportive and tolerant environment. I don't think that makes us different than anybody else. I just think sometimes we're very good at reminding each other of that's why we're here. And certainly that's why I like working with our team. But it does say something about inclusion. What you just said, it says something about making sure that every child is included in the educational process. Quite often start from the premise that it's relatively easy, relatively easy for children with the, the right home circumstances, the right opportunities to go on and thrive. In fact, sometimes the main role and responsibility of the school is not to get in the way of that. I think there's something about, says about a school, what you do with your most vulnerable I think that's a really interesting measure and not one that I've ever seen uh, applied on a national level. So inclusion, yeah, massively important. But actually, I think there are certain parts of our educational system which are designed so that you don't have those students in who most need including. And I think that's when you start watching things like some of the, the league tables and e-back entries and other things. I'm, I'm not convinced by it. I don't think we do anywhere near enough to find out whether people are truly inclusive. It's pretty much up to what you tell an inspector and how far they can find it out in the two days that you're playing that game. Mm. I think there's an awful lot more information out there that should be used or could be used. Can we turn to your leadership and how you lead? So how do you, how do you describe your leadership? Idiosyncratic. But aren't all leaders idiosyncratic? Yes, I would imagine so. One of my favourite quotations um, from when I was a youngster was, my usual self is a very unusual self. I certainly don't try to hide from the fact that 
I think individuality is absolutely important. I've, I, my own children, I've always said, for goodness sake, worst thing I could ever hear was that you were normal because actually there should be something that's exceptional about you. And I think that's pretty much the approach that I try to take. I'm probably jack of all, master of none. So I'm quite good at asking questions about an awful lot of different things, but I don't think I need to be the expert in anything. I think I'm extremely argumentative. I've said to colleagues who've been on interview, the time when you want to be worried is when I'm not listening or I say I don't need to ask another question. That normally means I've got bored, to be honest. Whereas if I keep asking questions, sometimes that's really difficult and you can continue to pursue a particular line. Usually means I'm really interested in what you're talking about. So what's, what's the importance of questions for your leadership? Why do you need to keep asking questions? Any answer should lead you to a better question. And that takes you back to that value of the pursuit of excellence. Same as I get very frustrated if people tell us we're going to do exactly the same as we did last year in a school. You just think, well, that was an opportunity to learn something that you missed. So seldom is anything done in exactly the same fashion. It can be the smallest of little tweaks or something that just makes it that little bit better or an acknowledgement that this year's cohort or whatever is different, but it should constantly be a series of questions to try to make sure that things improve. That, for me, is why I'm forever asking and wanting to understand what it means better, just trying to make it better because that's what we're supposed to be doing, I think, anyway. CMAP has grown quite quickly. Everything's relative. Would you describe it as, um, it's grown, Let, let's use that. CMAT's an organisation that's grown. Yep. Um, <clears throat> when you consider other schools in terms of joining CMAT, when they either ask you or you look at them, what are you looking for? I think it's fair to say up until this point, I'm not aware of when we've formally approached a school or anything like that. That doesn't tend to be the way that we operate. You're looking for people, often leaders, governors. Occasionally hear people refer to the fact that the children there aren't very good or they're not the right. I don't understand that as a concept. And you just think, well, I don't really get that. And I'm not really interested in the buildings. Indeed, quite often being able to do something about changing things that have been there for an awfully long time is actually quite exciting. It's to some extent, doing the stuff that's normal isn't anywhere near as exciting as doing the really challenging things. There's not a particular variant. I have a bit of a theory if there's five different types of schools, schools that should never go wrong, or all the way through different categories until you get the fact that there are some schools that because of usually socioeconomic or entrenched parental perceptions or whatever else it may be, Schools that are going to forever be finding life a lot more difficult than others. I think we should be a comprehensive trust. I think there are trusts who have got themselves into difficulty because they always want to deal with the most challenging and the most difficult. And I think that it's wrong if you just stay at the other end and you stay amongst schools, which frankly should always be successful. I think we should be working in that fashion where we all support each other and we can learn off each other. It's an old series, Jimmy McGovern, Hearts and Minds, and he talked about staff and how um, teachers should be given regular sabbaticals because if you're going into the kind of institutions that he'd been looking at, he was saying, I don't know how you can do it for more than five, seven years at a time because the amount of energy that that's going to take out of you is unsustainable over a period, but that's exactly what the young people in those schools need. 
I like the idea of being able to move people around, be it within a week or be it within um, careers. I think that's fascinating. You only know so much when you've been in one school. The more schools you move around, the more you see how different things are. And that doesn't mean you have to always change jobs and go somewhere else because um, some of the finest colleagues I work with have worked through one school over 30 years. But then when you talk to them about what's happened to that school, they tend to have been on a journey and that they've learned things on the way through. Or I was certainly very fortunate. The first head I ever worked for said that uh, as far as he was concerned, you needed to go and see at least one other school every term. And if you weren't doing that, then you weren't challenging your own thinking enough. Uh, I think I've probably exceeded that target over the years. Uh, but certainly think that that's the way that we develop. That's the way that we learn uh, and engage with others. So yes, we've grown. Uh, we don't approach particular schools. We have our geographical region because I do believe there's about staff working together. And I realised through COVID, it's demonstrated that teams, but I still think teams works better when there's a personal relationship that sits there before. Mm. I, I'm yet, I'm sure other colleagues are far more familiar than I am with Teams and Zoom, but I still can't quite get the bit where you want to go and talk to the one person as you're making coffee because you need to have that conversation with them and someone else comes up and joins in the conversation. I can't see a digital way of doing that. Uh, and certainly having sat there through head teacher meetings where it's silent for the first 15 minutes as everybody waits for everybody else to turn up because you can't have that bit of small talk about uh, how did that issue turn out or whatever unless it feels like your conversation is going to dominate the other 15 people who are waiting quietly in the room it can't do that or I haven't seen it manage that at this point I think that it's vital you need staff who can work closely enough to each other to really share in each other's journeys and in each other's schools so we are geographically based we are all through and we are all inclusive. We had a one of those beauty parades at one point where a school had invited us to come along and pitch our wares. And then I got a phone call from the chair who said, look, this is terrible. Since we had the beauty parade and we promised we were going to pick your trust, but we've now gone into special measures. So I figure that's the end of the conversation. And he was genuinely upset. And I said, uh, absolutely not. If anything, you've just become more interesting. Because actually, we really liked you and we really liked your philosophy and we could see there were problems. But do you know what? We've got an absolute mandate now and we can get in and make some change rather than watching the usual spiral of depression that follows such a grading. So no, there are no particular rules. In fact, if rules are there, um, it was a, it's one of those mantras of life. For those who are unfamiliar with it, madness, baggy trousers. All I ever learned at school was how to bend, not break the rules. I think that's probably one of the most important things I ever picked up. So do you have a, a theory of change that you apply to schools or do you take each one as it comes and look at the context? And change is clearly important, isn't it? I have read, again, I, I cite the first head teacher that I worked for, put me on an MBA at the end of the second year and I said, why have you done that? He said, you'll need it one day, I can tell. And I didn't understand what he meant at the time. But one of the things we did in there was theory of change. So we read Fullen and others. So maybe there's something that sits there in the background that has a theory. But I think it's a lot more pragmatic than that. It's usual sorts of things. Be quite clear about identifying what's wrong. Find the root causes for it. Find ways of making early successes. Work out what you're inevitably going to meet as an implementation dip. 
listen to people, iron out the white noise, because there's always going to be some of that. There's always going to be, as somebody just said this afternoon to me in a, another discussion, said, uh, yeah, you don't want to worry about that person. They're the type, if you gave them a million pounds, they'd literally say it was too heavy. And you say, fine, so that's great. I've, I've taken on board what they've said. I've checked with someone. They said, that's not one of the voices you need, but these are the significant issues. And then try to enable people to deal with them in the best way that they can. Keep acting as critical friend keep your eye on what the main issues are always as well demonstrate to people how successful it's been as quickly as you possibly can happy people as a rule tend to do much more discretionary efforts absolutely vital and you'll only ever get that if you treat people well part of what you're saying is about making sure that you retain the clear vision of them as a human rather than as part of your system schools are nothing Obviously, they're set up by human beings to educate other human beings. If you don't realise that's the, the bottom line of everything that you're going to do, the quality of the relationships define what goes on within schools. That doesn't mean you can't argue, but it should mean that you're never disrespectful. You can be challenging, you can disagree, but it's kind of the, the rules of engagement with uh, most sporting fixtures, aren't they? that when you're on the field of play, but when you're off the field of play, then everybody's supportive and you recognise what you've been trying to achieve. So I think that's, it's crucial. And sometimes you've got to do really tough things, like explaining to people that it's not working in the role that they're undertaking at the moment for whatever reason it is. Sometimes they're the really hardest conversations, but you should try to do that always uh, with a sense of dignity and clarity as best you possibly can. Certainly sometimes you're liberating. Nobody goes to work to do a bad job. That's what I've always felt. Sometimes people end up getting caught in a horrible trench where they don't realise now. There's old D.H. Lawrence poem in there, um, The Last Lesson of the Afternoon, says something about why do we continue to beat our heads against the wall of each other. And quite often you find that that's where the love of children has gone. And actually the children don't like the teacher and the teacher doesn't like the child. And you're thinking, well, something needs to give here. Uh, and as usual, in most of these relationships, it's the adult who is responsible for defining that relationship. And sometimes you have to help the adult in doing that and setting different expectations or whatever else it may be. So, yeah, it is lots of talking as well, which goes back to the English teacher roots, um, forever telling narratives. And I don't imagine I've ever given a, a staff meeting that's ever run to time. Does that worry you? Um, it worries them more than it worries me, I think. Um, it certainly worries some of my other colleagues, but you so very rarely get that opportunity. And I think it is trying to demonstrate to colleagues what you believe in um, and what the vision and the value of the organisation is. And I suppose my way of doing that is talking too much at them, but telling them a lot of stories, examples of where we've made a difference and hopefully showing some empathy and understanding as well. That I think you're going to see these problems but these are the reasons why I think that we'll be okay. And it works some days, I guess it does in others. So with your leaders, you're looking for, if you were appointing your perfect leaders, which sounds like you've got some of them, but so you want people who can make sure they retain their human attributes. Yeah. <laughs> people who can lead change. Mm -hmm. um, people who can also tell the narrative of that change yep. as well. Not all of them. Because there are different roles within a team. Um, sport is very much part of my background. 
and be it cricket, be it football, be it rugby, even Speedway, everybody has a role within a team. And if everybody's doing exactly the same thing, then you've not really got a team. You've got a series of individuals who all share certain characteristics. I'm not particularly keen on that. So you have your storytellers, but there are other people who need to be absolutely um, amazing in terms of their empathy and their knowledge, I think is an absolutely vital part of it, their knowledge of particular areas. So it's absolutely crucial to us that people understand things like the finances, the numbers. You need people who are absolute genius at that and can translate it so that some layman like myself can then start to connect that to what does that mean to what we can do in that school in terms of what we can provide for young people and those challenges that go back to head teachers. Because a lot of the time, the thing they lack is time to be able to spend spend enough thought process to be able to make the right choices. Again, mantra from a, a former colleague was around, you can't possibly tell me if you've got a seven and a half million pound budget that you can't afford to, because there's so many things you can do with the seven and a half million pound budget. What you mean is it's not important enough in your rules of prioritisation. And it's just encouraging people to think through, what do you want to achieve? What's the end result that you want? What could you do differently with that to be able to manage it? So, yeah, you want you want thinkers more than anything else and brave people. What do you mean by that? Brave in what way? So I left, effectively left. I mean, I never really left, but I kind of did. I left a, an outstanding or soon to be outstanding SSAT, whatever, school, top of the league tables and the rest of it, and went to work in what was um, the old pandas and things like that that you'll remember of the accountability measures. They honestly wrote 100th percentile. I'd always figured they'd be polite enough to leave it at 99 because you really don't need to see the 100, but you sit there looking at it thinking, wow, and it it's just intriguing to watch how you get treated differently from one day to the next. And I hear the blether about we should be getting people to go into the toughest places. There's virtually no incentive to do that. And you get treated differently inside the system almost immediately. Uh, An image I use regularly is looking at schools which are, and this unfortunately shows age, but uh, that was the week that was when you had John Cleese and then Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett, who gets a sore neck at the end of it, have a think about the schools in your area and start trying to work out where they are. So there was a period of time when Ofsted in Cambridgeshire were having, um, it was about raising standards in Cambridgeshire. It took about 30 seconds, if that, to be able to read the list of the schools that were the mentors and the list of the schools that were being mentored. And actually, one had all the affluent, lowest FSM, highest average point score on entry were lecturing the ones who had the lowest average point scores on entry. Just phenomenal to be able to watch. I think you've got to be able to have, as I said before, that that ability or the opportunity, not ability, opportunity to have walked, worked across a variety of institutions because that's when you start to understand what all of those things mean. And you mentioned earlier about the... I mean, you, you call them arguments, you know, whether it's professional debate, whether it's arguments. Arguments. Arguments, okay. <clears throat> How do you create the conditions that it's okay to do that? Because that could easily blow up in your face. It does. <laughs> it does. Um, I guess that's by demonstrating it yourself and how, how you manage those conversations. So it shouldn't always be you arguing with someone else. I've said quite regularly... Um, 
the mic drop moment in the meeting is unpleasant for all and usually that means that it's not been managed in terms of a meeting so you, you shouldn't just be going in and spitballing something that's massively important and see what happens because um, that might lead to conflict or if indeed you can second guess conflicts coming try and work out where you can manage that situation and how you can manage your team um, so go and have the conversations in advance try and understand what's going to come out make sure that you understand how this is going to be and then keep reminding people of why you're doing it it's a difficult one and um, many of my colleagues will nudge me in meetings and go i think that's gone long enough now and you go okay you know it's, it's a tough one i find it very hard in a lot of our leadership team meetings because i'm both chair and quite often one of the the lead presenters i find it uh, delightful chairing a meeting particularly when you're chairing and you're not presenting anything you can honestly focus upon the, the cut and thrust and nobody's going to accuse you of having a particular interest in a certain area so you can manage the debate it's a lot harder when you're being the main presenter and the chair as well so i do think it's really important that my colleagues kind of give me a kick or a nudge and say no 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 you need to close this now you need to move on to that um, and sometimes I'll, i will say those things and say right we've got to a point we're all arguing still. We all need to go and have a think about this now and come back to it. Very rare things need doing immediately. I think that the tyranny of the immediate was, again, another lesson I was taught by another colleague. said, never trust anybody who says they need an immediate answer, particularly don't trust them when you're going into a new school. First person to knock on the door and say they need an immediate answer to something is relying on the fact that you haven't got the chance of being able to work out what the right answer is. They are the person who's trying to deceive you. Um, fantastic piece of advice. Uh, still remains true to this day. You can almost smile now as that knock on the door comes and you see. Go and ask your colleagues later, what do you make of? Yeah, wouldn't. Okay. <laughs> I, love the, I love the tyranny of the immediate. I've, I've always described it as uh, pressingly immediate. Everything is always pressingly immediate. And as you say, you know, frankly, unless somebody's going to uh, die or have a serious accident, it's not pressingly immediate. <laughs> I'd go as far as to say that the addiction to that is what you tend to find in failing schools or schools that have got into difficulty and can't get out. Everything's immediate, everything's a threat and fear of going in the local papers or the angry parent or whatever, and people don't actually take the time to stop and think about what they're trying to do, take it back to first values. That or a slavish adherence to policies. No. Yeah, where it becomes nothing but a checklist. Yeah. Of, of checking things off as well. Go back to what you believe and what's right. And normally that's where, certainly if it's not where the answer actually is, it certainly helps to frame what you're going to be able to find as your answers. Because we're not encouraged to be able to do that. But what if I was, if I was a new leader coming into the trust, how would you encourage me not to raise my eyebrows or feel intimidated by this argumentative um, or debating situation that I find myself in. Martin, a uh, lot, a huge amount I learned very fortunately from him. Uh, I was referring to it to a, another colleague who remembers it. We once had a, a Chinese delegation that came to see us and I was given the head job as the deputy head of saying why he was a great head. And I thought, I don't really know, to be honest. So I thought the best thing I can do is go and ask the staff because A, I'll find out whether they think he is or not, which is quite interesting in itself, but B, they might give me some good answers. And there's two that I always end up taking back myself back to. And one of them was that he was the master of the quiet thank you. 
The other was allied as well, I think, was that at 3.15, 3.20, whatever the time was, a few minutes after the end of the school day, you could always find him sitting on a desk somewhere. And what they meant by that was he was sitting at the front of the class talking to the teacher. And for me, that's always been what everything's about. If, if you've watched a colleague who's coming into those, your new leaders, give them the time to have that conversation with them help frame what it is, send them a little note. We know that that's the best way of encouraging the sorts of behaviours that you're looking for. Um, it was a long, long time ago, Martin sent me in to be argumentative in Cambridge here uh, about a particular thing in a meeting and he used to use me to go along. And I still remember one of the heads coming over towards the end and saying, are you okay? I thought that was really important because I'd been sent in to do something pretty tough with a bunch of experienced heads. Uh, and... I always remember that person for that and very successful. Now CEO of another trust, I just thought it was an absolutely tremendous question. You could see somebody going, I can see who you are in amongst this and you're clearly the new person to it. Try to make sure you go and have those little conversations with people. If you see those first times when they've been able to articulate something, if a head teacher says that X had said so and so, go back and say thank you. Um, as best you possibly can or find a way of just sending a little note or whatever else it may be uh, email that just has a a bit of a quite often silly I think that's probably one of the defining characteristics of me as a leader is I'm very silly um, a little silly comment that just kind of shows the fact that you've appreciated what they've done and you've noted it it's always hard weird about you start to realize that the role takes on a, a life of its own it's one of my favorite pieces i ever read um we did some employee engagement stuff and um, one of my favorites was a, a line which said who is this mark woods which i thought was an absolutely tremendous question and sent me off into a, an existential funk for days um but at the same time it's a really clear question about well who are you what gives you the right to be able to to do these things and you think okay Nothing really, except for the fact, hopefully, that you manage to make those kind of personal connections and talk to people. Um, that That's the bottom line of it. So I think you encourage people, A, by demonstrating that yourself. B, I have been told off by a fellow CEO for the fact I turn everything into a joke and I always seem to be having a lovely time. And you kind of go, well, there's an accusation, isn't there? Uh, and I probably am guilty of smiling and laughing, but I do get very bored when you spend some days just in po-faced conversation after po-faced conversation. I think some people lose the delight of doing what we do. Um, so I think if you keep doing that, you keep bouncing around with a big smile on your face. Another colleague, um, one of my colleagues who you're familiar with and know, I think, he talks about the fact that um, it's the head teacher sets the weather in an institution. So I try to set the weather. I guess that's kind of what I try to try to do. Always sunshine. Are you still having fun? Most days, most days. There is um, there is a filter that goes on, as we know, that the biggest problems make their way in your direction, kind of come to the territory. You should make sure that if you've dealt with something like that, you go and find the old, uh, how, how do you manage a class? Whatever your ratio is about saying three positive things to one negative, if you've just been doing some really horrible stuff, go and find some really nice things that will cheer you back up because nobody wants to see you moaning around and miserying about stuff. Yeah, most days, most days, intensely frustrated, um, very angry at things that happen inside the system. Get myself into trouble far too much. That's fine because that's what we should be doing speaking out for those who don't necessarily have a voice for themselves.
So, yeah, I think most days I quite enjoy it. Don't like doing things like this because this is like talking about yourself, if you see what I mean. And that's it's a bit awkward and a bit strange. You yeah. wonder what colleagues will think when they hear this. And it's a terrifying thought is they'd think, he really is the most self-deluded person I've ever come across. <laughs> I think Which, that. <laughs> it's a major danger, though. We've, we've talked a lot about how you lead within uh, the trust. How do you lead outside the trust? So how do you lead in the system? As with most things, you're probably better ask, uh, asking other people that question than me. But one of the things that comes across is you're clearly passionate about doing the very best for the children in the trust. And therefore, sometimes that can bring you into conflict with the system where you don't feel that the system is serving the needs of those children. So uh, we've done things um, which have been hugely problematic. So I've written formal complaints about directors of children's services because I was appalled by the way they were dealing with certain items. I think we collaborate very, very strongly with others. It's open source. So I was doing some work with another trust this morning that is genuinely because I, I really like them and it's really interesting. Um, and that's all. Uh, so you, you kind of get those influences in those kind of ways. There are some fantastic people who work inside the DFE and work inside a system that they want to change and they want to be able to work out how to do things better. Um, so maintaining quite often off the record on an alternate channel, whatever you want to think of as those conversations, making sure that you feed back information whenever you've got an opportunity. So if they ask for views or other people's thoughts on some things, constantly contributing back to that making sure that we work alongside local authorities because although I'm an academy leader, I'm not really that interested in the academy programme. I think it's most important that schools work with schools and whatever the best mechanism for that is, that's what we should be following. So we work still very closely with the local authorities. Sometimes I come into disagreement with them. I think they're sometimes hamstrung by the fact that they have to do things that play well with the electorate, even if they don't think that's the right thing to do which is a, a fascinating problem and we've talked many, many times about you should get education out of the political agenda because otherwise it's a series of short-termist daft decisions after another. Um, so making sure that you engage with those colleagues, trying to find the answers to the problems that they have, supporting whenever you possibly can, regardless of what that might be. One of the mantras Martin and I established, which usually means Martin established it and I, I learned it was a good idea later, was the answer to any question is yes. Could you? Can you help with? Yes, yes, we can. That, I think, is probably how. I do think quite often colleagues look in my direction when they know something controversial needs to be said because I kind of set myself up as being that person. And that's fine. It's almost one of my other colleagues always refers to himself as a... He says he's the fool, and he quite often is the one, to be honest, who we have a joke and a laugh at. And he sees himself as being the fool very much from Leah. That while everybody else is laughing at him, he's the one who, in amongst the madness, speaks the truth. I don't mind nicking the role of the, the fool every once in a while. I think it's quite an important one. So light relief, but usually some kind of message that sits behind it. And certainly argumentative to the nth degree when the time comes. What am I... This being Askell, I should say thank you very much as well. I was once in a, a public meeting 
uh, with a county council, uh, which some of the councillors, I think, were beyond downright rude, they were unprofessional and unreasonable. And certainly as I was speaking against something at that point that was being heartily booed by the locals who were there, um, it was a pretty hostile, unpleasant environment. My ASCAL rep actually wrote to those county councillors and formally asked for an apology for the way that I'd been treated, um, which they did, but in the minutes of the next meeting, nobody ever communicated with me. Um, and they were delightful at the end, saying afterwards, are you okay? That same question kind of comes back and you sit there and you say, oh, I'm absolutely fine because I do think what I was doing was the right thing. I think a lot of my colleagues think so. I was speaking on behalf of a very deprived school, which was extremely unpopular when you're talking where you are. That's okay. That's all right. It's the You've got to have the strength of your convictions. And as long as you've got the people around you, our trust chair is absolutely marvellous. She's incredibly supportive. And as long as you can um, point things out and explain why you're going to do what you're going to do, she, and the rest of the trustees, to be fair as well, although most of my conversations obviously like that are with her, really good counsel. Certainly Martin, I used to send him emails of what I'd like to say, and then I could hear him laughing out loud through the wall saying, no, you're not saying that. I really miss that handbrake on my day-to-day -day interactions. But uh, yeah, I think you've got to have the bravery to say what you're going to say. It's reminded me of another thing, and you, you asked a previous question. Um, it's one of the best things Shirley's ever said to me, our trust chair. She said that I'm at my very best when I've just cocked it up, which I understand is a backhanded compliment. And she's quite clear that that's not because I ever intended to. But actually, when it goes wrong, what you do is you, you, you face up to what you've done wrong. You're open and you're honest about it. You interrogate it. You ask other people how you could sort it out differently. And then you get on with putting it right. Because we have to accept the fact that things are going to go wrong. Can go back to what do you teach young people in schools. You teach them how to fail and you teach them how life is always going to change. If they've got those two things, you might, if you want to call it, you call it character building or resilience or whichever wording you wish to use for it. Those things are the things that young people are going to need as absolute life skills. Um, and I think sometimes I'm, I'm really good. Uh, no one is completely useless. You can always serve as a bad example. And certainly, if nothing else, I've presented myself in that way numerous occasions. Great. Well, I think I'm getting to the point of stopping torturing you now. Uh, <laughs> Thank but, uh, you. I always finish with the same question, which is, how do you relax? How do you take off the mantle of leadership? How do you stop? Uh, well, this should be um, a public apology to anybody who has either played left back badly uh, for Peterborough United or on a similar position for an opposition team. So there's something intensely cathartic about sport. I absolutely love all sorts and forms of sports. I've formed a particular affinity with Speedway at the moment because I love the maths and the flow and the rules and the sheer insanity of a lot of what they do, the bravery of it. So there's definitely part of that. The next thing is being able to free yourself into reading. I think it's just great. Anybody who doesn't read an awful lot, I feel uh, a great deal of sorrow for them because uh, the ideas are out there. Having an incredibly tolerant family, I guess it's always been helpful as well that my dad, being a primary head teacher, uh, he still loves it to this day, a conversation around that. I guess it's just enjoying what you do and being able to switch off when you need to. Just having those two sides of your head, the one side of your head that's immensely proud of all the things that you've done 
and then the other side of your head which is intensely frustrated by all the things you haven't done and managing to keep those two things in line as best you possibly can throughout and having people around will tell you when you're being a wally <laughs> thank you so much it, it has genuinely been really interesting actually i think you've got loads of there's loads in that that will, uh, people will find absolutely fascinating when they listen to that so but thank you because i know you don't find it easy uh, to do that and to talk you um, but you know you have you've talked about uh, not just yourself you talked about cmat you've been generous about other leaders and other people who are big influencers and i think that's an important message as well so it's been uh, it's been really fascinating so thank you so much Thank you. The Askle Leadership Podcast. 